You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome to the Batuta Advocate radio show. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate, and we've got Errol Parker here, editor-at-large. Now, today's guest uh, is one I've been wanting to talk to ever since, I guess, the world shifted off kilter a couple of years ago, and uh, we all started talking about words like resilience and, uh, you know, New York strong. That was a big one. Or uh, pulling together. Today's guest, I guess, is... Um, an expert on all those things well before we were required to by public health orders. He's a speaker, he's a storyteller, he's a vagabond, Tom Nash. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here. Now, you've spoken to way bigger audiences than just the two of us here. Well, I mean, it's not really a a case of quantity, is it, or quality? Oh, well, no. (laughs) You've got two punters. (laughs) Yeah. I've spoken to more people than you, but I don't know you well enough to say if I've spoke to better people than you. Yeah, like a beauty. Well, we'll try and improve. (laughs) But I guess we'll find out over the next half an hour or so. Yeah. So I I wanted to go back to um, what were you doing as a young man? What were you studying as a young man before everything changed for you? Were you an orator in any way, or what were you thinking of doing with yourself as a 19-year-old Sydney uni student before before you had to start learning about things like resilience and uh, pulling together? Uh, I had about as much idea what I wanted to do with my life as, I guess, any 19-year-old does. I was uh, pretty much obsessed with music, so I was a guitarist, yep. and I just loved playing music. I, I wasn't in a band or anything like that. I think I had a lot of um, self apprehension I guess about taking music further than my bedroom and I had a couple of little gigs that I played here and there when I was um playing guitar just like little uh, you know you'd go to a 50th birthday of a friend's father or a, yeah. a small restaurant where you'd be playing like eagles songs to 60 year olds yeah um, or something <laughs> like that but it never a uh, confidence in the sense that I felt like I could take my own music and write a band and things like that mm. at the time I was also studying I was actually studying a, a Bachelor of Science in Psychology at Sydney University. But I'd chosen that degree because I had a, an interest in the human condition, but I didn't really need to feel like I was going to apply it vocationally in any sense Yeah, down the road. I think for many people, it's just kind of expected that that's what you do after high school. You go to university. And so if you don't have any idea of where you're going, you just pick something that you're interested in and uh, hope that it doesn't bore you to death. That actually sounds like you're professionalizing being a musician. A great songwriter is interested in the human condition, but if you've got a family that kind of expects tertiary education, you can't just go and smoke billies and write songs. No, absolutely, yeah. And I I worked in a pub as well at the time because, I mean, this was back, so I'm talking year 2000, 2001, where you could uh, convincingly move out of home at the age of 18 and be able to afford to rent on your own (laughs) while being at uni and just have a job on the weekend. And, you know, not to say like it was tight, but it's not like these days where you kind of, oh, you'll be living at home till 40. So, yeah. um, Yeah. Or you'll be living with six mates and you'll hear your 42-year-old neighbours having sex. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's right. And you could still enjoy a a Marlboro about one and a half metres away from the bar. Yeah, that's right. Oh, you could. I think you could smoke in bars. Yeah, you just had to be that far away, you know. So did, you, did you? Yeah, I can't yeah. believe you remember that legislation. That's interesting. Um, 
I could I smoked rolly cigarettes, so I was like, I could afford that everywhere. I, there's no way I could have lived the way I lived uh, in nowadays. <laughs> no, you'd almost need to be on like 140 and working at Microsoft, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. While studying your degree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So yeah, my, my basic outline of my life at that point was I would go to uni during the week, I'd work in the pub on the weekends, and my passion would be playing the guitar. And so about halfway through that, about 2001, I had a day where I ended up feeling really sick, like I had a flu or something like that. Yeah, I was at uni at the time, and I went, I went straight home and I put myself to bed. And then by the time I woke up the next day through a horrible evening of sort of waking up being half asleep and half awake and dragging myself to the bathroom to vomit and running hot water on myself and passing out in the shower. I woke up and I texted my stepsister and I said, mm, I think you need to take me to the doctor. And by the time she got to my place, maybe 20 minutes later, she took a look at me and I'd, I had a purple rash all over my oh. face and everywhere that she could see on my body. And it turned out I'd contracted meningococcal disease. And it's one of these touch and go diseases where if you'd presented to hospital 10 minutes earlier, you might've been significantly better off such that you have less things amputated. But if you're 10 minutes later, you'd be dead. Yeah. Which creates a really interesting relationship between you and the concept of luck. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for sure. Because you're kind of like, are yeah. you unlucky to, for this to have happened or are you lucky to be alive? It's kind of a moot point in a way. Yeah, it is. It's, it's far more touch and go than say, you know, something happening to someone on a remote property. You know, you break a leg on a remote property, there's no one around. We kind of look at the factors around that. But yeah, meningococcal yeah, has Yeah, that's an interesting there. point. Yeah. yeah, I met somebody in hospital once who who was a rural worker who'd lost her arm in a tractor accident. And I think she said the same thing. She said it was like, it was hours before she was attended to. Yeah. So how does one contract the meningococcal virus? Is there certain sort of risk factors? Like are there things in, in the environment that you shouldn't touch? Uh, not really. It's contracted in a very similar way to COVID, I think, you know, via saliva. Yeah just a lot more rare yeah. yeah and to my understanding a lot of people actually carry it naturally but aren't affected by it and sometimes those two people the person that's uh susceptible i guess you would say it comes into contact with somebody who has it but is unaffected by it and their immune system is at a particularly low level that they aren't able to fight it themselves then they can be at risk there is a vaccine for it now mm. uh came out couple of years after I got it. Go on again. <laughs> so, Touch and go. Uh, yeah. Hey, I was doing it before it was cool. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. For sure. Just, just for keep sure. that in mind. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I think vaccinated people don't need to worry about it too much these days, although please don't take medical advice from me. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like one of those guys that offers financial advice on YouTube. Yeah. This is not personal advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, please gamble responsibly. But um, yeah, the upshot of that was that, that I spent the next 18 months in hospital and uh, they had to amputate both my legs just below the knee to stop the sepsis from spreading and killing me. And then a couple of weeks after that, they had to amputate my arms as well at the elbow, which apart from being the obvious loss of independence and pain and tragedy and all that sort of stuff, it also signified a great loss of independence in terms of being able to play the guitar, which was my one creative yep. outlet. Mm -hmm. And so I spent the next 18 months in hospital. In a rehab situation, in a rehab environment? or Yeah, the first six months was not in rehab. That was, um, you know, having things chopped off me and, yep. and dealing with a lot of skin damage that I had 
So I was spent most of my time in the in the burns unit in Concord because they treat yeah. your skin like right. burns. Yeah, right. And then uh, a year after that, in a rehabilitation hospital, and that's where I, you know, started the very slow process of learning to walk using prosthetics and getting some sort of an arm prosthetic, whatever that ended up looking like, to be able to complete basic tasks like drinking, eating, and picking things up. Like drinking and smoking and, and in fact those were the first two things that I learned. I'm not kidding. Okay, uh, for a bit I wasn't able to walk, and so I was in an electric wheelchair. So I had a makeshift arm that was able to push the wheelchair. Indeed, that was the first thing that I learned how to do with a prosthetic arm attachment because there was a sense of independence yep. and liberty about that. I guess being the master of your own destination, yeah. as it were. Um, and then the second thing was learning how to smoke again. Yeah. <laughs> so did you have to move on to the uh, town smokes? Yeah, or did. did you learn how to roll? No, I was straight on to TaylorMade. I wasn't yeah. going <laughs> to... On your town smokes, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I want to ask about that independence thing because you're actually... you were. I mean, you were living out of home just before it happened. But 19 is an age where you're like, what does independence feel like? You're in the middle of a transition anyway. You know, you're not far from from living in the nest. Um, do you reckon that probably helped you with your transition into this, the, the age you were? Do you think that helped you be prepared mm. to tackle this new life because you were already young and kind of looking at what was out there in the world? You kind of, you're already in that mindset. I don't know much about this world. So I don't, definitely don't know much about this world missing four limbs as opposed it's, to It's an 40. interesting age to contract something like this because I remember learning that there were three key age groups for meningococcal and you know one was infants yep. the other was teenagers or adolescents yep. specifically around my age mainly due to lifestyle reasons like uh, you would be more likely to let's say share a drink or share a yep. cigarette with somebody yep. and then the third age group was um people around the age of 50 or sort of middle-aged 50 of 60 yeah of whom I actually met somebody at that age that got a similar disease. And I, I think they're interesting ways of looking at them from different age groups because I think when you're older, you're so set in your ways that you feel like you've lost more. Yeah. And so it could arguably be more difficult. And when you're an infant, I think, you know, obviously it's tragic, but often infants that grow up having lost limbs adapt to them a lot better. Yeah. Mm. And that's all they ever know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Or they would hardly remember, you know, having an actual limb. And for me, I'm, I'm somewhere in between that where I, I'd lived 19 years being able-bodied and then all, all of a sudden have to, had to switch to disability and just uh, see how I, I like the size of that. Um, so I'm not sure whether specifically the independence of living alone really did much. I think it was quite typical for people of my age around that time. Yeah. But certainly being that age would make you physically more robust, I guess, than immunocompromised people at an older age who would find it more difficult to fight a disease like that. So what was the response from your mates? Like, I, mean, I know it sounds like your mates were taking you in your motorized scooter to the pub to drink schooners. But, um, you know, where were they at in life? And were they, you know, is that almost the ideal age? You know what I mean? Socially. I remember being 19. I, I had some mates that, you know, you could remove four limbs and you wouldn't even know. Like they were mm. for, sitting at home and they were and they were around and they were hanging. So did that – was that seamless or was that tricky um, back to the social aspect of just being around people? 
Uh, I was extremely lucky to have a really good group of friends yeah. and you, you don't need a whole lot, you know what I mean? You only need a few key people that are really dedicated and I had a handful that were came in to see me every day and we're all in the same point in our life, you know, we're all in first year uni and spent a lot of time with each other. Some of them I went to high school with and a couple of others I didn't. So I was lucky to have that support network because, I mean, support networks are different if they're friends and family. That's one thing yeah. to point out because I think you have different conversations with family than you do with friends. Yeah. But just overall having friends and family around, it's not just the support that you think on paper would be good, yeah. but it's also a strange kind of accountability thing as well, such that if you've got a lot of people around you rooting for you effectively you feel very much the pressure not to let them down. And I think that's a big motivator for people who do have strong support groups around them to actually be able to weather the storm. I can see where you're at at that time where you, you, you're relearning everything. A lot of milestones you got to go through again, prosthetics, you got to, you know, you got to do your first steps again. How long after that did you start thinking about operating beyond adversity? How long did you think it's no longer about this in what I do day to day? Well, that's an interesting question. I guess, you know, adversity in a way is, is a constant. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had the big challenges of walking and becoming independent and doing things like that. But adversity is there for everyone and it's there always. There are always challenges presenting themselves. So I don't think it's a case of there being a, you know, out of the woodsy flag fall type <laughs> part of your life. Mm -hmm. But using the techniques to be able to take on challenges in a better way, in a different way to what you might have if not having gone through that stuff is really the key mental change that I had to make. And a lot of it is to do with just realizing that I had to do everything differently to what I did before. I had to solve problems differently. A lot of it was vulnerability, the idea that, you know, having been in hospital and constantly been an exposition in a way to many people you deal with vulnerability differently and I find myself less vulnerable now and I don't have as much, I guess, apprehensions socially. I find myself more confident and more confident with who I am. And then there's even small things like your ability to make iterative processes far more pragmatic in that you just take small steps towards things and focus on those rather than uh, big goals, which is something that I might have learned, let's say, when walking. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, right? When when learning to walk again with prosthetics, you have to actually watch the road in front of you yeah. because you have to feel the ground with your eyes to yeah. know what the terrain is like. Of course. And when I was being set all of these walking goals by physiotherapists and they'd be like, you know, just, just keep your eye on the main goal. And I'm like, mm, instinctually, I don't want to do that, right? <laughs> What I want to do is I want to watch the road in front of me. And while I'm doing that, a second order effect is that I, I have these small goals that I work towards. So I can only see five meters in front. And that makes the whole, the larger and more macro journey kind of sort itself out. Yeah. And you, you end up focusing on things that are around you and in your immediate vicinity better than you would if you were, you had this ironically myopic macro view of your end goal. Yeah. In which yeah. Sometimes you don't take time to kind of smell the roses that's what i want to ask you about smelling the roses right so you said you lost your creative passion your creative outlet in guitar for a while for a while when you got that back did you feel that did that feel you like a like a hit could you smell the roses in that moment when you started making music again 
Absolutely. Yeah. The story about that was I, I decided that I was going to try to play the guitar with my two prosthetic hooks, yeah. which might be regarded as any by any sane person as ambitious. There weren't any YouTube tutorials. Well, you could, <laughs> guess you could probably start with the lap steel. <laughs> well, yeah, I ended up there. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't want to start there. And I, I didn't really end up there. What I did was I, I went through all these different designs that I could use. That Some of them were like a stamp that would go over a guitar neck that would enact different chord progressions and things by pressing buttons. It was, it was a really interesting process of trying to design something that would enable me to play the guitar. And then through each process, I was breaking down in the same way that I would overcome any kind of problem-solving challenge. And I ended up with like a almost like a slide that I could hold. And then I got an engineer to create one and a pick holder for my hook that felt uh, that fit and converted my old Stratocaster to a lap steel kind of by just raising the action a little bit, putting some flat wound strings and open tuning it. And yes, I was able to play the guitar, but I was able to play it almost immediately because I already had the music knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just getting around the physicality. Right. And obviously there was that rush of, of getting that back. Yeah. For sure. Um, and being able to write again and have that creative outlook. But what I realized as well was that, you know, having overcome so much shit up until that point, all of my previous, you know, apprehensions about creating a band and playing live in front of people, my own songs, seemed to pale in comparison to the challenges that I'd overcome up until that point. Yeah. And therefore, I was able to take it further. I started a band and uh, we even got studio time and recorded a CD. We started playing gigs in public, original music. We toured in Melbourne. I don't think I would have done any of that had I just been playing guitar as an able-bodied person. Yeah. I probably would have mm. held yeah, on sure. to that apprehension for a couple of years. It would have just been a creative outlet at home. I'd just like to go back and ask you about the transition from rehab to come back in into the Matrix. What was that transition like? I mean, like you always knew that day was going to come and you'd have to come back into the world. How did you find that? You know, it was interesting because you know how time feels different at different points in your life. And to me, it felt like such a long process. But in reality, when I got out of hospital, I first went to live with my mother in the Blue Mountains for about eight months. And then I moved out onto my own into a house to live independently. That felt like such a long time, but you know, it was really a, less than a year from being in hospital yeah. to be being living on my own again. And it carried with it so many un unanticipated advantages. Like for instance, I remember when I moved out of hospital into my mother's place, she lived in this uh, small two bedroom kit home in, in Mount Victoria. And if you can imagine every aspect of a house that would make it easy for a disabled person to rehabilitate and then you inverted all of those attributes <laughs> yeah you, you would come close to imagining my mother's house and so it had a really steep pebbled driveway that was hard to traverse and it had a an old wooden staircase with large stairs and it was a tiny pokey house and but i realized that it was actually the best place that i could go yeah to rehabilitate. because if i could do any of the if i could live in that place i could live anywhere yeah right. yeah sure. and then when i moved out on my own to my own place another thing that i discovered was they typically uh, send to you an occupational therapist when you have a disability yeah. and they'll go around your house and they'll be like okay well we can just change everything around to be you know something that you know a disabled person would be easy for them to use and 
instinctively I, I kind of knew that I wanted as little of this shit as possible because, you know, I wanted to be able to find the limitations of, of my own abilities before I started adapting my environment to me. Yeah. And so, and the example I often use is a kettle and, you know, so they can get you a kettle that you don't have to pick up. You, you just press a button and it tips. But then what happens if I'm at someone else's house yeah, or if I go traveling? Sure. You know, I want to be able to use any kettle. Yeah. It's like, it's like yeah. anyone. It's like the boyfriend who's never driven a manual ute until he has to move house with his girlfriend. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you, yeah. Having that skill, yeah. like knowing your limitation of that skill, because, you know, you, your skills are actually transferable, but your environment is transient. Yeah. To even think that, you know, Mount Victoria, looking back, you probably didn't like it at the time. And I can't imagine how challenging those eight months were. But looking back, you wanted, you wanted it harder. You wanted it to be more difficult. Yeah, I wouldn't have said that to you if we were talking at the time, but <laughs> I, I'm better off for it. Yeah. yeah. So then tell us where you kind of start thinking, all right, well, I've, got, I've developed a way of looking at the world. I've developed a way of adapting. When did you start thinking, oh, I'm in a position to share this? Not for quite a while, actually. Yeah. I never wanted to be one of those people that starts sharing an experience or a viewpoint that I've developed that is woefully underdeveloped. Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to wait until I was, I'd been doing stuff for about 10 years to A, have something useful to talk about because I don't think it's useful just to say, hey, I've lost forearms and legs and here I am yeah. because that's not very pragmatic. But I wanted to be able to have achieved some things first and I wanted to take some time to reflect on, you know, exactly what that is as a mechanism and, and also how it can be useful to other people. So not just that it's something that I've overcome, but everyone can sort of feel good about listening to the story and then switch off and forget about it in a week. I think that's kind of useless. Yeah. So it, it wasn't until probably my, I'd say, mid-30s that I started doing talks and speaking to people. And then even that in a process uh, was quite collaborative in the sense that I often find it was a lot like DJing for uh, your listeners who don't know, presumably yeah. I ended up becoming a DJ, but we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, but it, the DJing process is very much like a conversation where it's not a didactic position, right? So it, well, it ought not to be something that you sit behind the decks and prescribe exactly what everyone should be listening to yeah it's kind of a conversation between you and the audience and, where and their vibe yeah. you know yeah you you feed off them you know what they want you give them what they want and a little bit of something they don't know mm. and yeah. speaking is kind of the same in the way that over the years of doing it you start to learn what resonates with people and what doesn't mm -hmm. and so it's not a case of just being like okay it's fine to, to you know tell my story now it's a, it's a case of you know let's let's see what helps people let's see what resonates with people and uh, I'll just keep telling stories and trying to be as introspective as I can about my own situation and and see what can pe other people can actually draw from it that's really uh, I never thought of that public speaking is actually not too different to DJing you know sometimes you surprise them but for the most part you're kind of keeping it a bit safe and comfortable in, in, in many aspects too tell us about DJing so you, you know you're sick of touring as a you know band uh, you decided to mix it up, go uh, disc jockey, digital CDJ. What are we working with? Well, actually, you know, the DJing thing was unanticipated, like many things in my life, yeah. I guess. And so we were in the band in around, I think it was 2004, 2005. 
And uh, as I said, we'd been playing in a few venues around Sydney and Melbourne. And I was studying at the time sound engineering. And then I went on to do music business management. And one of the requirements for the course was that I do a few weeks of work experience in a, could be wherever, you know, it could be a music agency or it could be a radio show. Or what. And I had some loose contacts in the nightclub world because I'd booked these shows. And, and so I got some work experience in a club in King's Cross. At the time, Chris, who uh, had been my best friend from high school and been through my journey the whole way through hospital and also was in my band, uh, he'd started DJing at a friend's party on a Saturday night, just kind of rock music, one after the other type DJing. And I got him down to this to this club to do some late night DJing and I reworked how they ran one of their Thursday nights, started booking bands and things like that and, and made it really popular and... So I realized that I, I had kind of a knack for that. Mm. And Chris and I were talking about how we'd like to do something on our own because there was no remuneration in situ in that particular mm. uh, instance. And there so was nothing? Been, there was nothing going on? Like no, no bar tabs? No, nothing? Oh, no, yeah, like, yeah, no, sorry. You, yeah, you'd often get a few free yeah. drinks, yeah. but yeah, no no sort of cash return type thing. No, because no, it was still saying. like, it was just before we had the tidal wave of Australian EDM, like in 2004, like the top of the charts was like, what about me, you know, <laughs> Black Betty, you know, and uh, mm. Are you are you reading that off a thing or? Are you... <laughs> oh no! Like I've, I'm just having to cast my mind back. This is really tragic that I'm pulling this out of my brain. Rove hosted the Arias that year, and got on stage with Spiderbait as they yeah. performed Black Betty. Actually, I think the biggest <laughs> the, the biggest song that year was Maroon 5's "She Will Be Loved." Oh, that's a track. Look, but probably so, not look, what you were curating there. No, and then just a few more years, and then we come into like the midnight juggernauts. They start coming around. You know, you've got coming into muscles. You know, yeah, was, well, yeah. I think a lot of things changed. It's interesting you talk about timing because I think we were really lucky in timing in that we ended up starting a club ourselves mm. at the beginning of 2006. Yeah, right. And I think six and seven were the were the golden eras, yeah. particularly uh, yeah. for you know like old school electro kind of stuff. Yeah. And we got lucky with timing. Where um, was your club? It was at Club 77 in oh, Sydney. Yep. Whoa. Actually, it's still going, you know, this club. Oh, now. it is. Yep. Yeah, not in a weekly capacity. In about 2018, we moved to doing special events. So we now do like Halloween and Mardi Gras and things like that. And we DJ at other places, Ministry of Sound events and stuff. Yeah. But when we started in 2006, it, we, we weren't DJs. I certainly wasn't a DJ. Yeah. Actually, my first gig was on our first night. <laughs> um, because we didn't we didn't frame it around the technical abilities of the DJs. No. Yeah. Because we didn't have any. <laughs> and so we, we just framed it around the, the branding, the personalities of the people that were at the club, the yeah. decorations, all of the people that worked there, the drink specials, the posters. And people kind of resonated with that. It was a kind of carefree attitude. They didn't come expecting us to be really good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then yeah. what happened was we developed over the years and, and we ended up, you know, getting quite decent at DJing, which was unanticipated. And then it just ended up being a career. And that's that's what I've done most of my life. You can do that. You can pull off a vibe. Like if anyone's really looked closely at the Sex Pistols play music, they're not oh, that yeah. good. Like, no, no, they're horrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're so, yeah. I know, but like you can really, but like it's it's so 
strange, like in Australian pub rock, you can really see where the high watermark was and where the water started to recede. And that was at Wave Aid. So I think that Australian pub rock peaked when Bernard Fanning did uh, Evie Part 2. Evie Part 2, yeah. The that was the absolute high watermark. And then from there, it receded down and Australian EDM came up. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. I've that, never really looked into that, but yeah, I will now. That's that's fascinating. That was a big day, actually. They had Jet singing Evie Part 1. Yeah, and they absolutely destroyed the SCG for it. <laughs> like, they were just like, they had so many games there and they had one more game. Like, I think that New South Wales had to play the Blues there two weeks later and they walked on that pitch and they were like what in god's name has gone on here like they didn't even try to cover it like there's just like there's just like all these caps off bottles fucking darts and like they're just like i thought you were going to say it was something like that did, did you see that documentary about uh what was it woodstock 99 oh yeah Woodstock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just burnt the city to the ground yeah, yeah. Just I, like... I can't believe that ben lee was there <laughs> <laughs> it was like hey lip biscuit catch my disease no he was yeah, yeah um yeah. ben lee was in the newcomers tent yeah <laughs> oh i thought you were gonna say he was like the sacrificial goat that they threw to all the rage against yeah. the machine the, fans yeah, kid, yeah. kid rock that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, a great era so i mean obviously you were doing something for the kids outside of that you know, that kind of new metal or, or whatever else was going on in commercial radio anyway. And that kind of started pumping. Mm. More so, the, the transition I want to ask now, aside from, you know, you're moving to the Blue Mountains one day and you're missing four limbs and you've got to make that transition into, uh, you know, independence. I want to know this, because I find this one even more rare to see. How do you transition from being a nightclub promoter into normal society? <laughs> you don't you know you're you're forever cast away with um i don't know the the vagabonds of society yeah. i guess <laughs> but yeah we we also never really thought about ourselves as nightclub promoters because we we just ran an event we ran a party and, and yeah sure we promoted it to an extent but we we're also the face of it and we were the djs and so and that wasn't really done much yeah right so back then save for a few different brands the format was usually that you'd have the event organizer who book everything you'd have the club promoter they would have promoters underneath them then you would have the djs that would come in and it was um a bit of a patchwork quilt whereas we wore all of those hats simultaneously right and so it was almost like coming to our house for a house party except it was in a club yeah 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 mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, it worked. People liked it. So. Yeah. yeah. So what are you doing day to day now? We're, we're going to come see you. South are you guys coming to South by Southwest? Yeah, we're going to come see you at South by Southwest Sydney. Yeah. Do you kind of move towards, as you said, speaking to audiences and sharing what you, you know, sharing your pragmatism, you know? Well, what's the word you use? Separation of life noise. <laughs> I, I don't specifically use that. That's yeah. in my bio, and I yeah. never write my own bios because oh. I can't. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Which is surprising. Well, someone else's opinion on what I do. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's good now that we've got AI to do it. <laughs> yeah. I should just write all my future keynotes on chat <laughs> yeah. GPT. <please. laughs> yeah. Is this what you do day to day? Yeah, so these days uh, I'm doing a lot more speaking than I am DJing, and that's mainly because I'm now 40. Yeah. And it, it's not a physical challenge. I guess I still do DJ from, you know, a few times a year or something. 
Uh, I just lack the ability to have those kinds of conversations in nightclubs anymore. So yeah. I can't, you know, <laughs> uh, bring myself to do that. Uh, but I, but I can in in events like South by Southwest and yeah. obviously in the keynote environment. And I'm also writing a book, which is going to be out in September this year, called Hook, Line, and Sinner. Oh, and, <laughs> God, we've got three, yeah, four fuck. puns here, man. <laughs> That's right. So I've got that coming out in September, and then the the month later we got South by Southwest which I think I've been looking forward to uh, more than any event I've got coming on the horizon. Mm. That's going to be a fantastic week. So I'll get to see you guys there in person. Yeah, 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 we'll have to say g'day. Well, we look forward to seeing you down there. Tom, thank you for joining us today. And uh, what a great yarn. I I, I can't wait to hear you actually on stage waxing as opposed to um, trying to navigate the dry uh, Western Queensland, I guess you'd say, interviewing tactics that we've, we've applied to you today. Yeah, well, actually, I'm I'm excited about this talk because, and I've given this talk in a few small uh, areas before, but it's about universal design. So it's it's kind of a little bit different to what we've been talking about yeah. of the, you know, anti fragility. I, I guess is a word that I would use yeah. for it. People often use resilience, but I don't think that's correct. But um, this is about universal design because, as you know, South by Southwest is very sort of tech forward and tech yeah. focused and future thinking yeah and so this topic is you uni- know how universal design can benefit the broader population yeah. and what universal design is it's designing when optimizing for a person's specific needs yeah so a very easy example is you know you have cutouts in curbs yeah, yeah. and they were designed for people in wheelchairs yeah. now that has gone on to benefit parents with prams and strollers and yep. kids with skateboards and things like that sure. door handles rather than uh, circular doorknobs are used for people with reduced motor capacity yeah. or whatever it is yeah. or kids escaping from burning buildings yeah but also useful to any able-bodied person to open it with their elbow if they're holding a tray of lattes sure. to the office right yeah and so i have this deep interest in how innov- innovating for universal design actually helps the wider population. Yeah, that is, yeah. that's it. And it's not literally just accessibility. I know those um, down in uh, the Waverley Council in Bondi, the um, the stop-go buttons were automated for the Jewish community on the Sabbath so they couldn't engage with technology. And then all of a sudden that was the system that got rolled out across the country for COVID-19 social distancing. We had the automated stop That's go amazing. button. Yeah, I'm uh, going to get you to send me a link on that because yeah. I'd love to read more about it. Yeah, yeah. but that, yeah, that is interesting uh, what you're talking about universally. It kind of actually eliminates the, the, the idea of accessibility or, mm. yeah. or tailored accessibility. It just becomes yeah. good design. <laughs> it just becomes good design. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just limited to the physical world, right? Because if you think about a lot of the technology that we use these days, things like um, speech to text, you know, or yeah. text-to-speech yeah. were initially developed for people that needed it, yeah. but then everyone uses it. I can't tell you how many people I see, you know, if I go to a bar and it's crowded and noisy that are watching YouTube videos with closed captions on. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. And also, you know, I, most of my friends will use accessibility features on their iPhone, Yeah, which, which I always say is kind of like the technological equivalent of parking in the disabled spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's going to be a really fun. It's going to be a really fun presentation. I hope you guys can make it for that. The more I think about it, the more everything works, right? Like, I mean, audio books weren't, uh, yeah. Yeah, weren't initially made for people who didn't like reading. Yeah, there are so many innovations that are, that are downstream of this kind of yeah. design that I think it's a really good way for 
individuals and companies to think about how they can innovate using this as a mechanism. Yeah, mm -hmm. terrific. Mate, we look forward to it. We'll see you down there. Yeah, I'll see you there. Take care.